Well, today, as we continue our sermon series on life's biggest decisions, I want to start by uh, talking about basketball. Any NBA fans? I know a lot of college basketball fans, but maybe you know the names of these two players. Will Chamberlain, anybody here? Will Chamberlain, Bill Russell, right? Will Chamberlain and Bill Russell, all-stars, Hall of Fame, uh, two of the, the greatest centers, the greatest big men to ever play the game. And it just so happened that their careers took place at just about the same time. Uh, Bill Russell started his NBA career in 57, and Will Chamberlain came along in 1960. So for about 10 years, they were both in the league at the same time. And some of the greatest basketball games ever were these contests between Will Chamberlain and Bill Russell. Now, even if you're a casual NBA fan, you probably know that Will Chamberlain is the only player ever to score 100 points in a single basketball game. He is also the only player to ever score more than 80 points in a losing effort. Bill Russell and Will Chamberlain went toe-to-toe, chin-to-chin, night after night for 10 years, but they were very different players. Will Chamberlain won the league scoring title seven times. Bill Russell never even came close. But Bill Russell and the Boston Celtics won the league championship 11 times. And Will Chamberlain's teams only won twice. See, the difference was Will Chamberlain was all about Will Chamberlain. He was all about getting the stats and the buckets and taking the limelight and hoping that maybe his teammates might contribute something, where Bill Russell was the consummate team player. He was much more ready to dish out an assist or make a rebound or block a shot than he was to to take the, the basket himself. It was this wonderful contrast between a team player and an individual superstar. And in the end, the team player won the championships. Now, I share that with you this morning because I think there's a metaphor here about decisions we make and about how we go about living our lives. It's a metaphor for the the struggle and the tension we all face between, on the one hand, the need for our our own self-fulfillment, our own hopes and dreams and goals and passions, ambitions and opinions, versus the team goals, the community needs, the common good. And we all face every day of our life this struggle, this tension between what's good for us versus what's good for the community and what's good for others. And all sorts of influences that go into what am I going to do? Well, that's what we want to look at today. Do we want to live a life where we fly solo or are we willing to ride the team bus? Fortunately, Scripture has a little something to say about that. I'd invite you to turn your attention to the New Testament. This is the uh, Apostle Paul's letter to the Philippians. I'm reading from the second chapter, beginning at the first verse. Let us listen for God's word to us. The Apostle writes, Therefore, 
If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill His good purpose. Friends, the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Give you thanks, O Lord. You never fail to bless us in the reading and hearing of your sacred word. May it find its home in our hearts this day. Lord, I pray that your spirit would rest upon me, guiding my thoughts and removing from my lips any words but your own. With faithfulness and with integrity, I might proclaim the wonderful good news of your redeeming love. Amen. You know, sometimes I hear people say, if only we could go back to the good old days. If only we could go back to that first century experience of the church where everything was good and agreeable and pleasant and filled with spirit and, and a spirit of kindness and generosity. And I look at these people and say, have you read the scriptures? Have you read Paul's epistles? If you have, you know that, that the early church was very argumentative. They struggled to get along. There was often a spirit of discord and dissension and, and churches wanting to break into two smaller churches and, and not associate with this group. And they struggled coming together in union because of, of their differing backgrounds and differing languages and differing customs and traditions. We know that the Apostle Paul struggled to hold the, the churches together despite significant moral differences on issues like, like what food could be eaten and what could not be eaten, the role of women in the church, whether men needed to be circumcised, what role would the law of Moses have in the new covenant community? 
There was a vast array of opinions. People did not agree on this and often were threatening to break the church apart. Paul, in every single one of his letters, calls for a spirit of harmony, a spirit of unity. He says we must remember that we have been united in Christ and our unity is not in the world and our unity is not in our opinions and our perspectives. Our unity is in Christ and we must hold firm to that which is the, the, the rock of our salvation. It's a desperate plea to hold together. Now, I think although Paul was talking specifically about the church and the need to hold the church together, it also applies to so many of our other relationships and associations, whether it's our families, our marriages, whether it's our communities, whether it's our churches, even our country. There is a point at which we need to be willing to give up our personal agendas. Jesus didn't say, duke it out till you win. He said, deny yourself and take up your cross. Now that kind of goes against what we hear a lot in our culture. That certainly goes against what you hear in the media and what you hear from certain you know, self-professed gurus out there who are all about yourself and living your best life and, and fulfilling your dreams and passions and, and being the happiest you you can be. That's not what the Bible says. It's a struggle. How do we hold our families together? How can we be a full human being? How can we reach our potential while at the same time make a positive contribution to the family, to the community, to the country? There's a tension to be held there. But I think Paul, Paul gives us some wisdom in this matter. We deal with this on any number of levels today. Anybody remember a few years ago a guy named Robert Putnam. He wrote a book called Bowling Alone. Anybody remember reading Bowling Alone? Well, it was a wonderful sociological study of the breakdown of social organizations and groups within the United States and uh, the UK. And the, the title comes from the fact that he noticed that from 1978 to 1998, there was an increase in the number of bowlers people who liked to bowl, or I don't know if they liked it, but they went bowling, uh, from 78 to 98, the number of people bowling increased. But the number of bowling leagues fell off the cliff. There was a significant drop-off in the number of people participating in organized bowling leagues. And yet more and more people were bowling, which led him to surmise that these people must be bowling alone. Well, it was a humorous little antidote in a study that looked at the drop-off in participation in social organizations. And during that same time period, while people are bowling alone, there was also a dramatic decline in the number of people participating in organizations like Rotary and Elks Club and the Optimists and uh, the PTA and even fraternities and sororities on campus. Their membership began to take a dive. People were opting out of participating in social organizations. And I don't have to tell you, the same trend took place in the church. 
regardless of what stripe you were theologically or what denomination you participated in, people are opting out of participation in the church. Now, back in Paul's day, people opted out of the church. They looked at the Christians and they called us things like cannibals and hypocrites and judgmental and troublemakers, even traitors. Well, today we're rarely called cannibals. But the world at large doesn't have a particularly positive perspective on a lot of what happens in the church today. There is still a a spirit in many churches of divisiveness and conflict and confrontation and and a desire to to just pick up your marbles and go home and if they won't play my way, I'm not going to play with them. And the world looks at that and says, why would I want to be a part of that? When men and women are ordained in the Presbyterian Church USA, they take certain vows. One of the vows they take is that they will promote the peace, unity, and purity of the church. And that is not an easy vow to fulfill. So often it seems the tension between the purity and the unity makes it difficult to maintain the peace. But I contend that's true in our families and our marriages and our neighborhoods and our communities, our towns, our country, in the world today. How do we maintain our convictions and yet also our desire for unity while living in peace? It's a conundrum. But I believe the Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Philippians, gives us the way forward. He says right here in the second chapter, if there is any encouragement, any comfort, any common sharing of the Spirit, any tenderness and compassion, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and mind. Here it is. Do nothing out of selfish ambition and vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. Humility is how we move forward with our lives, in our communities, in our families, in our relationships, certainly in the church. We move forward with humility. You know, we are so... Uh, program. We are so taught to seek every advantage. Find someone's weakness and exploit it. Get all you can get. Make your move. And yet Paul says, no, be humble. Seek out the concerns and needs of others. He gives us the example of Jesus Christ. He says, you know, God Almighty did not press his advantage over us, but rather humbled himself, emptied himself, and became a man so that Jesus would have unity with us and we in him and together have a spirit of unity. There is a word that Paul uses here. It's koinonia. Some of you may have heard the word koinonia before. It's used 19 times in the New Testament. It's um, usually uh, translated as uh, union or unity, fellowship, communion, association, 
uh, intimate sharing, a connectedness of being. It is the primary word that Paul uses to describe our relationship with Christ and our fellowship with one another. And the thing for Paul is you don't have one without the other. You can't have fellowship with other Christians without also having koinonia with Christ. It's not a one or the other, it's a both and experience. And so while the world may, may promote divisiveness and separation and splitting and going off and doing your own thing, the gospel always calls us to hang in there together in union with Christ and union with one another. Whenever there is a spirit of divisiveness, a spirit of schism, a spirit of separation and divorce, you can be sure that it is not of the gospel. Now, sometimes these things happen, without a doubt. There are divorces, there are divisions, there are schisms, there are separations. But I guarantee you, my friend, God does not rejoice in our dividedness. God weeps whenever we separate ourselves from one another. I wonder what would happen in our marriages, in our families, in our churches, in our country, if we moved forward the way Paul recommends with a spirit of true humility? What if every time we made a bold proclamation? What if every time we took a bold stance, every time we laid down an ultimatum, we put a little asterisk that said, but I could be wrong. How humbling would that be? I'm, gonna, I'm just gonna be honest. There have been times in my life when I was wrong about something. And if you don't believe that, just ask my wife, she'll tell you. And furthermore, I wanna assure you, there are going to be times in the future when I'm wrong again. The thing is, I know that. And I hope you know that about yourselves. We need to move forward with humble opinions. I love what Abraham Lincoln once said. Lincoln, in the height of the Civil War, said that the problem with the world today is that the wise men are filled with doubt and questions while the fools are filled with certainty. How true is that in the world today? Friends, there is no simple solution. There is no easy answer. There is no clear-cut path forward. But I believe that the Scriptures give us the footing we need to humbly move forward in a spirit of koinonia, union with Christ and fellowship with one another in our personal lives, in our family lives, in our corporate and communal lives, and in our churches. Now, I promised you that each week during the sermon series, I was gonna share with you a, a tool, uh, a discipline of discernment. Last week, we talked about the difference between discerning and deciding. And so today, I'm gonna give you the first of the tools, the disciplines of discernment. And the tool I wanna share with you today is not an easy one. The tool I wanna to talk about today is confessing your sins. Now, the scriptural basis I wanna share with you comes from Hebrews 12, the first two verses, where it says, 
Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Whenever we come to a major decision in our life, it's important that we accurately assess the situation. No one wants to be deceived, nor should we deceive ourselves. Confessing our sins doesn't have to be a formal, liturgical process. The words you use, you don't have to necessarily be on your knees or in a booth. Confession of sin is really about being honest. We wear so many masks. We have so many personas in our life. Whatever role we play, whatever situation we're on, But when you confess your sins before God, you're able to to strip away the mask, to, to peel back the layers. And it is in those moments of vulnerability and honesty where you have nothing to hide, it is in those moments that you truly experience koinonia, intimate sharing, communion with Christ. I encourage you, Whatever decisions you're facing, whatever dilemmas need to be resolved, to begin the process of making those decisions with honesty and integrity and vulnerability, acknowledging who you are, who you've been, what your failures have been, what your biases and prejudices are. It is in that moment of honesty where you're less likely to deceive yourself or anyone else. Friends, I thoroughly believe that we are all just one big decision away from being the people that God created us to be. We are one big decision away from living the lives that God created us to live. So I encourage you, my friends, to discern wisely. Amen.